And for the rest of us, I would like you to listen carefully to three biblical commands, three things that Jesus says and his apostles. Remember your first love. Remember your first love. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Those are three commands given to us that are just a sampling of commands. Where we are beckoned, where we are called again and again to not lose sight of Christ in Christianity. You get the idea when you read the Bible that there is a real possibility, that it's not just theoretical, that people who say they're Christians will lose sight of Christ. The Lord's Supper, Jesus says, do this, taking bread, symbolizing his broken body, taking wine, symbolizing his shed blood. So we're talking about his work. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. And he goes on to say that you do this until he comes again. We keep doing it to keep remembering what Christianity is about. Jesus has to address a church in the book of Revelation. And he has to say to a church, remember your first love. To a church of all people, reminding them to remember that he's the priority in Christianity. Amazing. His apostle, the apostle Paul, says to Timothy, a pastor of all people. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And the list could go on. But it makes the point for us as Christians. It makes the point for us gathered here today at Omaha Bible Church that there's a real danger, tragic danger. There's a real danger that we who call ourselves Christians, we call this a church, a Christian church, are always facing that danger of not acting Christianly, of losing our first love, of forgetting Jesus. And so we're talking about this this morning. We're talking about the danger associated with assuming Christ or assuming the gospel and the tragedies that come when we forget that the essence of Christianity is Christ and his gospel. We started doing this last Sunday. I'll review for the sake of those of you who weren't here, and then we'll move on. We're looking at seven tragedies, seven tragedies that come as a result of assuming the gospel or forgetting Christ as central in Christianity. And then, Lord willing, when we're done with this this morning, this break, we'll, we'll come to the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. Uh, that book will quickly come to an end uh, in the weeks ahead. And then, Lord willing, uh, in the fall, we'll start uh, the gospel of Luke the good news of Jesus Christ according to Luke. And I have been waiting for this for a long time. Can't wait for that. Um, it's, it's sometimes called the gospel of certainty because of what it says in chapter 1, that we would be certain that Jesus is the Christ. And uh, Lord willing, we'll have a great time as we, we look to Christ and his great gospel account in Luke. So that will be the plan. 
But for this morning, we're focusing on this, this problem of, of, of assuming Christ and assuming the gospel, which is something we talk about quite often. I think we should talk about it quite often because we know it's a real danger. And so it's that time of year again, I suppose. And uh, last Sunday, we talked about moralism. Moralism is a real danger we face as Christians when we forget that Christianity is central ultimately or centering ultimately on Christ. Moralism is where... <clears throat> Excuse me, moralism is, is where we, we don't close our Bibles. We still bring our Bibles, we open our Bibles, and, and we, we mine the Bible for timeless truths, we might say, and we find many true things in the Bible. But as we teach these principles and as we see these eternal truths, which they are, we forget that they're all meant to be in a natural habitat, if you will, in a natural context. And that natural context is a context that is related to Christ. In John chapter 5, Jesus teaches that the Bible ultimately is about Him. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus teaches the disciples that ultimately it's all about Him. And so sometimes we as Christians, when we're not remembering Jesus Christ, when we're not doing this in remembrance of Him, when we're not remembering our first love, we think somehow we move, can move beyond Christ and we're just on to following Bible principles. And that would be moralism. And last week, we won't do it this morning, we looked at Galatians as a, as a good text to help curb and to help cure moralism where, where, oh yes, we start with Jesus and isn't Jesus wonderful and it's great to have the gospel of Jesus and then somehow we move beyond Jesus, which appropriately got the Apostle Paul really upset and should get us upset, sometimes upset with ourselves that we have that tendency to do that, where Paul says in Galatians 1.6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And as I mentioned last time, it wasn't that false teachers came in and said the Bible isn't true. No, they came in with, 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 with Bible guns fully loaded, lots of verses, lots of principles. But they all either assumed the gospel of Christ or by adding to the gospel, they denied the gospel. And as a church, we, 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 would, we would be really foolish. Everyone in this room would be very foolish if we thought we were above that kind of danger. Maybe what would be helpful is if sometimes we listen to ourselves speak when we teach Sunday school. When we talk to our kids, if we have them, about Christianity. Or, or maybe you talk to your friends about Christianity. And if you could listen to yourself speaking, would it sound, as you're talking about Christianity, would it sound distinctly Christian? Or would it sound like maybe a different religion? What's Christianity all about, anyway? It's about Christ. It's about the gospel. It's about Jesus living a perfect life, the life we don't live, to satisfy the requirements of God. And then dying a sinner's death, even though he never rebelled himself, he's doing it on behalf of us rebels. And then he rose again from the dead. This is the gospel. This is good news. 
which calls for a response, which is faith, which is trusting in Him. That's what Christianity is about. And we, we, we just have to be really careful and quick to repent of assuming the gospel and not being deliberate about the gospel. And before we know it, we sound like someone from a different religion. I have a friend who taught at a Christian school for years. And he taught Bible at a Christian school for years. And I don't remember the details of how he told it to me, but something along the lines of of someone actually confronting him and asking him. I don't think it was at the school. It was someone else. And basically said, you know, that, that, that was a good Jewish lesson you gave. How was what you taught any different from how a Jewish rabbi would teach that lesson? And you know, that question literally changed his life. It literally changed his ministry. And it broke his heart. Because he wasn't teaching as a Christian. And Jesus says, the whole thing's about me. If that sort of revolution needs to happen in your life, I want it to happen in your life. I stand before you, I want to repent of those kinds of sermons. And I want you to repent of those kinds of sermons too, even if you're not a preacher. Let's not assume the gospel. Let's not do moralism. Let's teach the Bible, all of it, but in a Christian way, in light of what Christ has done. Then we looked at legalism, which is just another kind of, another way of saying moralism, but we did look at it. We looked at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Just to give you a little something new this week when it comes to legalism. Legalism is when we, we say you've got to do things and that will make God happy. And if we do these things, then eventually God will be happy enough to accept us. And, and as I mentioned last time, there's like old school legalism, your grandparents' legalism maybe. The angry kind that just gives you all kinds of extra biblical rules and regulations. And then there's more of a new school, a a, a more stealthy uh, kind of legalism that's actually going to use Bible verses. But it's assuming the gospel, and as long as you do these Bible commands, then God will accept you. That's no less legalism. Galatians talks about that. Here's a new illustration. There's a smiler on TV. Sells lots of books. And he, rather infamously, has said something along these lines. We don't preach law here. We just tell people to love God and love their neighbors. Okay? Let me translate for you. Here's what he really said. If you're, biblically, if you're biblically literate, here's what he said. We don't preach law here. We preach law. It's kind of profound. You know, man, I didn't take that class in school. That it would lead to selling tons of books. All you have to do is tell people, we don't preach law here. We preach law. You know, what? That's insanity. What, what, are, you, what are you doing? What are you talking about? But see, we've forgotten. We've fallen asleep at the wheel. We've, we've forgotten our Bibles. We don't, we don't know biblical Christianity. And we hear someone say, we don't preach law here. We, we preach 
love God and love your neighbor. Because didn't Jesus say the essence of the law? He, he, it's recorded more than one time in the gospel accounts when they're trying to trick him, uh, uh, the attorneys are. The essence of the law is love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And we say, oh, that's easy. At least it's not law. Oh, you know, if I had hair, I would pull it out. You're totally joking. You're totally kidding me. And that sells books. I need to do something different. I want a Ferrari, you know, or something. That's the problem. The, the problem is, is, is love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's not the easy part. That's the heart. That, that's what will damn your soul and damn my soul. To love God purely with pure motives, the way he's revealed himself on his terms, that's, that's, that's the, the law in its very essence. That's the problem. Because we're rebels and we're sinners and we don't love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I wanted to start the service this way, but I thought it would lead to too much confusion. How many of you this morning have loved God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved your neighbor as yourself? Let me put it another way in light of that, since that is what God's law requires. And by the way, Jesus says, do it perfectly. Matthew chapter 5, that's how it ends. How many of you here, in light of the fact that that's the law and Jesus says do it perfectly, how many of you here today have sinned enough between the time you woke up and now to go to hell? Yeah, you better put your hand up. If you haven't put your hand up, you don't get it. You totally don't get it. The law of God says love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus commenting on this very thing doesn't say, oh, that, that was the hard part, but Jesus came and did the Sermon on the Mount and that's a lot easier. Hello? He says, he just ratchets the whole thing up and says, and be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Boom. Yeah, you know what? None of us do that right. And, and the gospel is the good news that Jesus came, also in Matthew chapter 5, by the way, I mentioned it last time, not to abolish the law. That's chapter 5, verse 17. But to fulfill the law. Oh, that's why Christianity is so magnificent. That, that's why the gospel is so great. That's why we dare not leave, leave our first love. That's why we dare not forget the gospel. That Jesus came into this world. And what does he do? He comes into this world under the law of God. And he does the law of God perfectly. Translation, loving his father, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving his neighbor as himself. So that now, if you're trusting in him, God sees you as if you are the perfect law keeper. Even though you're not. Because his son was and then jesus dies to atone for your lack of law keeping and he rises from the dead isn't it great it's beyond great it's the best it's the best but when we forget when we start going down the road of assuming the gospel and just mining the bible for eternal truths telling you how to have a happier life before you know it when we go down that road we've forgotten the whole point of the whole thing which is that Jesus came to fulfill the law. It's good news. It's the best news.
And by the way, that's what makes us distinctly Christian. What makes us distinctly Christian is we believe in Jesus as our Savior. Savior from what? Wrath of God, because we're not law keepers, we're law breakers. It's magnificent. It's magnificent. It's legalism otherwise. Let's move on to a third. I'm just going to re-preach the first three with new stuff, man. This is awesome. Third one we looked at was narcissism. Narcissism, which is just another way of saying self-centeredness. And, and here's what happens. We, we forget the gospel. We look to the Bible for lots of things we must do. And then before you know it, we're doing all these things. Not very well, usually. But we're doing all these things. And we're very self-centered. Narcissistic. Instead of Christianity being about the glory and the grandeur of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He died for us while we're His enemies. And we are sinners and we are rebels. And so Christianity is about Christ. When we forget that it's about Christ and we think it's about us, we can't get along with each other. We're so self-consumed it's not even funny. Even like the divisions that were happening like in Corinth... What does Paul do? Just give them a lecture with more biblical principles to follow for overcoming divisions? No, what does he do? He realizes that they don't need to, now that they've moved beyond Christ, just have more principles. They need to really understand the gospel. Because if they really understand the gospel, just like if we really understand the gospel, we'll realize that we've been forgiven much. So we can forgive much. I would suggest to you that when we can't get along, long before we need to say, here's how to get along, we need to remember what Christ has done for us. And now when I offend you, not as license, but when I do, you're thinking Christianly. And you're realizing that you've been pardoned for a lot and you've been forgiven for a lot. So you can forgive me. And the same goes when you offend me. And then we're going to be in Revelation chapter 5 mode, which we looked at last time. And, and where we find ourselves focused is on the glory of the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb. That's where it is for us. Now let's move on. Oh, but, oh what, just one more thing. Um, there was, a, there was a super interesting interview with an author who just wrote a book recently on narcissism uh, that came out last Sunday. I listened to the podcast on my way home last Sunday after, the ch- after church, and I thought, cool uh, um, providence that it worked out that way. So if you want to follow up, um, go to the Omaha Bible Church Twitter account, and uh, I think it was the last tweet that was tweeted. Um, and if you're not an active tweeter, it's time to sign up. Um, <laughs> It is a helpful way to communicate at times, and there is an account, and you can, you can follow the link that's there. Now, you've all been given biblical principles and standards for tweeting, um, because it's the Christian thing to do. Just kidding. I'm not funny, but you guys really encourage me sometimes when you laugh at my lack of funniness, so... Yeah, thank you. I feel so good about myself now. I feel like a fulfilled narcissist. Um... Let's move on now. Let's do some new ground. 
if we forget the centrality of Christ, one of the traps we're going to fall into among many would be we're going to start thinking less and less like Christians and acting less and less like Christians. And we're going to think like deists, deists, deism. We have a propensity to this because we had founding fathers who were deists. So a deist is someone who believes in God, believes in a higher power of some sort. But the God of deism is not the God who is sovereign, who who is personal, involved, caring, communicating in a way with his creation that they can understand. That would be a good way to get ourselves into thinking about deism. And I don't know of any Christian that would say, you know what, I I find deism appealing and I'm actually a deist. But one thing we see when we're forgetting Christ and the centrality of Christ as God's revelation of himself and our perfect righteousness, before you know it, people start talking and sounding like they're deists. So if you would, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to, uh, let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. There are other texts I'll reference, but let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. In Christianity, we see that God is personally involved and he's made himself known to us so we can understand. And he's working providentially, personally, yes, in the world that he's made, including in our lives. And so we're not talking in terms of fate. We're not talking in terms of luck. We're not talking in terms of chance. Because we have a God who's involved and who cares and who is causing all things to work together for good. He's that involved. And the centrality of Christ helps us to know this. I know you're already there, but let me read Ephesians. I know you're already in uh, Hebrews, but let me read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Notice how personal it is. It's in Christ we have an inheritance. Having been predestined. Wow, that doesn't work for a deist. That's very personal. Having been predestined, that's how personal he is. According to the purpose. Wow, that's not, that doesn't work for deism either. That's very, that's very, well, purposeful. It's purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What's interesting about that, and we're going to see it in Hebrews, is, is God has a plan for his universe. And his plan includes plans for his people, you and me. And the plan centers around and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we remember the centrality of Christ, we're thinking like God thinks, and He cares about us personally, and He cares about us personally specifically as, as we would relate to His unique Son, and He is causing all of this to work together for our good, even though we might not understand how, even though there's good times and there's bad times, there's happiness and there's tragedy, we have a God that we can trust because in and through the work of Jesus Christ, He is fulfilling a purpose and a plan for us. That's very Christian. But we don't think in those terms when we're not thinking in terms of the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 is is an excellent cure to this where we're reminded He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he, it's talking about Christ, upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I want you to notice there that 
He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He is in control. And He goes on to say in Hebrews, lots of things about atonement and reconciliation that have to do with us, and we're related to Him. And then, for the sake of time, we won't go there, but you go to Romans chapter 8, and we hear things like, those whom personal, He foreknew personal, you could translate that for loved. Those whom he foreknew, he does all these wonderful things for us. And all of the wonderful, wonderful things he does for us center in and around the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Causing all things to work together for our good. We remember this and we find great encouragement when we remember the centrality of Christ. This God who made this universe has a central figure in it all and His name is Jesus. And Jesus has many people. And He is fulfilling a perfect plan for His people and that would be us. Not because we deserve it, but because He is so gracious. So we have to remember... That he has revealed himself. He is personal. He cares. He's not disconnected. Just one more thing about that. Sometimes we, we show our cards that we're becoming deistic in our thinking. When under the banner of a false humility, we'll start talking like we can't know anything. Well, yeah, I know that that's what the Bible says, but you know, how could we really know? And, um, you know, that's human language and, you know, we're talking about God here and certainly we can't really know because this is God and we're different and some deists have climbed into your head and the pastor has not been doing a very good job of preaching Christ to you because when we're preaching Christ, we're talking about, please track with me here, the one who is the eternal Son of God who comes into this world and becomes a human being who is, as we just read, the exact manifestation. He becomes God. He is God and He becomes one of us. Why? Read John chapter 1. So that we would know God. So that we would know God. Not so that we would have lots of more guessing that comes as a result. So that we would know God. So that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. Instead of hiding or instead of making excuses about, well, we could never really know. And, oh, I'm so humble. It's so prideful to say we could ever know. The ultimate is in pride, especially under the banner of Christianity, is to say we can't know when God has sent his son so that we can know. It's a practical denial of the incarnation when we say we just can't really know what God wants. We really can't know what God is like. And we're like, oh, I guess you're right. Wait a second. How about God has made himself known and he has the ability to do this. He made the world. He created language. He's made himself known. 
And now we're thinking and talking and acting like people who are distinctly Christian. The humble thing to do is to say, yeah, I think God is God and He has the ability to communicate. The ultimate in arrogance is, well, yeah, I believe in a higher power, God, let's call Him Father. He has a son, Jesus. But we really don't know what God is like. We really don't know what His will is. These are real discussions. If I'm doing a better job of my job, we're not going to lose sight of Christ who is God who became a man so that we would know God and be reconciled to Him. Now, that doesn't mean we know everything on the level that God knows it. It doesn't mean we know everything exhaustively. That would be a mistake to say that. But it does, know that we, it does mean we can know things. Because Jesus says, apart from knowing things, you'll die in your sins. You've got to know Him. So let's guard ourselves from being practical deists by being functional Christians and thinking in light of what He's done. Isn't it great, by the way? I'm getting kind of worked up about this because I, I realize that it's a problem, and so uh, maybe I, I'm having a tendency to snarl a little bit, and I don't mean to do that get worked up about my own sin and my own failures. Isn't it great, though? Isn't it, isn't it great news that we're not scratching and clawing in the dark? It's so good. God is so kind and gracious. He didn't owe it to us to send His Son, Jesus. He came into this world so that we might know God. Read John chapter 1. It's magnificent. It's amazing. God has been so gracious to us. You know what we deserve? We deserve to know nothing in darkness because we're rebels. And God has seen fit to be kind and gracious to actually come here and to become one of us so that we could be set free. Let's move on to another problem when we forget Christ and that would be mysticism. It would be mysticism. What is mysticism? Mysticism is where, well, we have the word mystery. That might help us. Mysticism is where we, we, we have this constant quest for something more, something in addition. So over and against Christianity, Christianity is where God sent His Son into the world to save sinners. We're talking about historical events. We're talking about uh, realities that were done in real space and real time. And mysticism is going to say, yes, I know all of that. Maybe I believe all of that. A Christian version of mysticism is going to then move on and say, and I have had extra experiences to really bring about my maturity or my redemption or whatever it might be. So, I know that that's what Jesus did in time and space. I know we have the Bible given to us by the apostles. But God also talks to me. And I've had this vision. I realize you haven't had it. So I know something you don't, have, you don't know. And it creates division in the body of Christ. And it's an undermining of historic 
biblical Christianity, which says things like the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. Jude verse 3, chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, if you're still there, let's look at Hebrews chapter 1 and see something about the finality of Jesus. And, and this is God's final word. And so what we don't need to do is, is, is be on this perpetual search where I've got to have another kind of, of encounter with God that's extraordinary that my friends don't have. And if I just have this, then I'll be perfected. I'll be matured. And, and that ends up sounding a lot more like mysticism than Christianity. And that's dangerous. It's purely subjective experience. Something extra undermining the sufficiency of Christ. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. Read with me. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Just put your finger there if you would or, or just remember, remember that and realize. Okay, we're not saying that, no, that we're not doing deism where God's not involved. No, no, he's very involved. He, he, he's, he's a talking God, as D.A. Carson likes to say. He's a communicating God. He reveals himself. In fact, he's done it in many different ways. But do notice we're already on to something. He says through the prophets. Now, were prophets the only Christians who were alive back in the day? No, are believers. But God has had a, has had a pattern of speaking through the prophets for the benefit of all the believers. But do notice that it's, it's, it's drawn to, to fulfillment, to completion, to climax. Verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Notice the sufficiency, the completion, the fulfillment, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. I was going to stop, but I couldn't resist putting in verse 4 because he even deals with angels, which oftentimes is the key to unlocking our mystical experience, right? So even the angels, he's supreme. There's a, there's a, there's a punctuated period or an exclamation point. There's, there's, a, there's a paragraph ending, a chapter ending. Look, God is a speaking God. He's revealed himself to us. Isn't he amazing? Isn't he gracious? But know this, first and foremost, it all culminates and centers in his son. Better than prophets? Yeah, son. Better than Pat? Yeah, son. Doesn't get any better. Better than the angels, better than anything and everything, even the legitimate stuff, like the prophets. It's in his son, Jesus. Mysticism says, yeah, but. Historic Christianity says, no, don't say but. You don't need to move beyond Jesus to be a mature Christian. It's not in some extraordinary experience it's in christ ultimately and you might be saying to yourself i don't think this is a problem i agree with everything you say maybe not but if this isn't a problem then why are so many of us spending i don't know how much it is 1695 
and buying heaven is for real. No one on planet earth needs something more. Because in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. And while I don't think it's blatant and high-handed, it's an undermining of the sufficiency of the son to say, you've got to have an extraordinary experience beyond Jesus. Since it's on the table now, anyway, just remind you that the Apostle Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians about when he went to heaven. Oh, erase that. He didn't speak about it because he was told not to. When a genuine apostle genuinely experiences genuine heaven, he's told to shut his mouth about it. I think it probably is fair to say that that would be a good conclusion to draw. How about this? I'm not trying to rain on anybody's parade. I'm trying to say, hey, you don't need more. You need Jesus. What happens in, in, in Hebrews? What do we said about Jesus? Uh, what is said about Jesus, God's final word? How do we grow spiritually? He says, fixing your eyes on Jesus. What? The author and perfecter of faith. Mysticism says, yeah, I know you got Jesus, but boy, have you had the experience I've had. You really should. No, 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 no. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. You want to grow spiritually? Don't take your eyes off of Christ and look to someone's extraordinary experience that cannot be substantiated, that is contrary to apostolic example. You've been sold a bill of goods. And you're into mysticism called Christianity. I'm trying to remind you that Christianity is about Christ and it's, you don't need more. And by the way, too, mysticism is very divisive. Because now we have the haves and the have nots. Oh, you had that experience? I didn't. Instead, Colossians chapter 2, verse 10 says, we've been made complete in Him. We're all haves. <laughs> We're all haves. There are no have-nots. What we need to be busy doing is getting better at fixing our eyes on Him and not looking elsewhere. Just, just one other text, and that would be, you don't even have to turn there, you can jot it down. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Let me set it up a little bit. Peter sees the glorified Jesus to the degree that a human being can. It's called the transfiguration. You can read about it in Matthew's gospel. Peter uniquely witnesses 
he gets, a, he gets a fuller glimpse than anybody else has received. Maybe we can put it in those terms. The transfiguration. God in his, his glory to the fullest degree possible. Being careful how I say it. He sees the transfigured Jesus. Not to mention the fact that he ends up seeing the resurrected Jesus later. And in Second Peter, he says, I've got something more impressive than actual experience. And in, in one level, we want to go, there's nothing more impressive. There, there's nothing to compare to that. Because how could you ever argue with someone's experience? It's so interesting that he says this in Second Peter, which is addressing false teachers, by the way. What's more significant than actually seeing Jesus? And he says, we have the more sure word of prophecy. I think he's talking about the Bible. In the context... Now, that doesn't really fit into my little, you know, egg. I mean, if you give me the choice, apart from being somewhat informed about the issues. All right. Now, so all right, we're just going to take a survey here. Um, who would like to go to the Bible class this morning uh, or who would like to go to heaven? Well, duh, you know. Who here would like to actually witness the transfigured Jesus? We have it in a special room in the back. We're only charging nineteen ninety-five. you know. Who wants to go to that class? Who wants to go to this class? You know how it would go. I'd go for the class where you can actually see him. Absolutely we would. That's intuitive. It's pretty interesting that Peter says we have something even more dependable, more sure than that. We've got the written account. He's elevating the, the significance and the finality in relationship to the significance of the once and for all Delivered to the saints faith, like Jude verse 3 talks about. And he's given us a great cure for mysticism. He's given us a great cure for mysticism. I'm not trying to suggest that we don't have amazing experiences. I think we do have amazing experiences. The Spirit of God is alive and well working in our lives. But remember, the Spirit of God was sent by Jesus. He said, read John 14 and John 16. He said to glorify me. Okay? He also said to lead you into all the truth. It's the truth about Jesus. So we can know sure, full well, when we are finding ourselves mentally enraptured and growing and learning by having our eyes fixed on Jesus, our attention, our affections is the idea. The Spirit of God is working amazingly. Amazingly, he's doing what he's sent here to do. And so let, let's, let's find this careful, distinctly Christian place to stand. We don't want to be deistic in our thinking that God is not involved. There are no experiences. But we don't want to overreact and be distinctly not Christian over here with mysticism. And if you need a little bit of help along this line, Colossians is really helpful because it was the haves and the have-nots. Colossians 2.10, you've been made complete or whole or mature in Christ. You don't need more. Don't be intimidated. Okay? Uh, later in the second century, Gnosticism from the word knowledge. The knowers, they had extra experiences and the Gnostics came, divided the church. 
because we have a once and for all faith. We don't need to go and be haves and have-nots. Let's move on now. A sixth tragic outcome of losing the Christ of Christianity is inclusivism. Inclusivism. What I mean by that is when we're saying that salvation is not just in Jesus, but it's in all of these other religions. And that's really, really popular. Which gives evidence that I probably haven't been doing a very good job of preaching Christ and other pastors like me. Because if we're preaching Christ and reminding you about how Jesus is the one who, and we're quoting him, who said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me, you wouldn't be inclusive in your thinking. If we're quoting his apostle Peter in chapter 4 of Acts who said, there's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved, you wouldn't be drawn to being inclusive. What you'd be drawn to is evangelism. You'd be drawn to opening your mouth about the great, great work of redemption that is found in Christ where you can find forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to God, that God has a son and his son came into this world so that we might know God and be saved. When that's your steady diet and you say, well, there are many roads that lead to God, you say, that doesn't sound like Christianity. That doesn't sound right. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 28. As you're turning to Matthew 28, an interesting article appeared not long ago in Newsweek. A very provocative article, and it was entitled, We Are All Hindus Now. Talking about Americans. Fascinating. I'm sure you can find it online. And and the lady who wrote the article made the point that, that Americans are looking less and less Christianly, and they're looking more and more like Hindus. And I don't think the lady's either a Christian, or, or I don't really know, actually, but she doesn't disclose herself to be a Christian or a Hindu. She's just making the observation that so many Americans are saying there are many ways to heaven. And she draws the profound conclusion that that's not Christian doctrine. That doesn't come from a Christian worldview. That, that, that would be something that looks more like Hinduism where there are the the, the pantheon, many, 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 many millions of gods. And you can have multiple gods. It might help you to have multiple gods to get your way to quote-unquote heaven. That would be more of an Eastern way of thinking, not a Christian way of thinking. She cites a study from the Pew Forum that claims that 65% of Americans believe many religions can lead to eternal life. That wasn't the alarming number. The alarming number was 37% of evangelicals think so too. By the way, the word evangelical has gotten, you know, means something totally different. But if we recover the meaning of the word, what it used to mean, it's people who believe, they're gospel people, people who believe the gospel, the historic Christian gospel. Uh, that's, what it, that's what the word means. It's a, contra, it's a contradiction. <laughs> it's a contradiction in terms to have an evangelical believing there are many ways to heaven. It doesn't even make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. And I would suggest to you that we've lost sight of Christ and the gospel. And we're busy doing moralism, busy doing legalism, still with Bibles open probably. And that when we 
Here's something explicitly anti-Christian at the very fiber. We think Hinduism is Christianity. That's all. And Christ is robbed of glory. Matthew chapter 28 is so helpful because obviously there's 28 chapters and at the very beginning, he's come to save his people from their sins. He shows himself to truly be God through his miracles. He shows himself to be the last Adam through his temptations, much like the first Adam. And he does the right thing. So he he's doing all the right things. He is the Messiah, the one prophesied. He is the Savior. So he's different from all the other gods. Unique, distinct, standing out among all of them. And that's why he can say what he says at the end. Chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is so inclusive that it's exclusive, right? All authority in in, in heaven and on earth, so everywhere, has been given to me. So it includes everywhere, but it's mine. This makes sense in light of what he's been saying so far in the gospel account. Then then let's keep going. Okay, then we better listen. Verse 19, go therefore, so it makes tons of sense in light of what he says in verse 18. Go therefore, there's a logical connection, and make disciples, followers, learners, pupils of all nations. Notice how inclusive that is. It's so inclusive that it becomes exclusive because he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So they're to be identified with with the one true God, the triune God. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all. Notice how inclusive that it becomes exclusive that I have commanded you. Remember, he's the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice how inclusive the last statement is it's so inclusive that it's exclusive this is how it is right now in the first century in palestine and it's how it's going to be to the very end right to the end of the age it's not like this is a plan for a time and then it's going to change it's glorious and wonderful but it is a much needed corrective to the way we've been thinking in our biblical illiteracy Professing Christians like crazy, including leaders, are saying there's many ways. It's distinctly anti-Christian to say there are many ways. What we need to do is keep giving the microphone to Jesus so he can speak. And when we hear Jesus speak, we'll realize that there's only one Savior. And we won't be mean about it. We'll be compassionate and passionate to want to do what He says. If this is really true, if God's law requires perfect obedience, and Buddha didn't do that, he's not a very good substitute, nor any of the other religious leaders. Perfect obedience is what the law of God requires. Perhaps that's what we've forgotten. And Jesus came into the world, the just for the unjust. And Jesus comes into the world and he fulfills the law. 
He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the last Adam. Not just the second Adam. The Bible calls him the last Adam. He's the one. And he does everything right and perfect. And and now we're not mean-spirited when we carefully, though boldly, step over every cultural boundary, religious boundary, socioeconomic boundary, and we say, there's hope for you. In the one who kept the law and fulfilled it. In the one who atoned for sins. Trust in him. Now we're motivated. We have a hopeful message. But do notice all nations, all ethnos, every ethnicity. We need to be called back to Christ. And the way we do this week in and week out, by the way, is we don't assume the gospel. We don't forget the gospel. We don't tack the gospel on. We see that ultimately the whole drama from Genesis to Revelation centers in, on, and around the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's one and only Son. Isn't it good? It's tragic because there's problems all around and there are Christians all around denying these things and that does give us righteous indignation and it does make me want to snarl. But I'm not snarling at lost people. I'm snarling at people who are telling them they're not lost. And I invite you to join the team. How hopeful it is. What a hopeful message we have. And then finally, let's wrap things up. And then we are going to do what Jesus said to help us solidify this, where he said, do this in remembrance of me. A seventh tragic outcome that will come when Omaha Bible Church loses the centrality of Christ in Christianity. And let's call it liberalism. Liberalism. And lest any of you think this is going to become something about politics, let me clarify quickly. Uh, I mean religious liberalism religious liberalism and this is a good way to kind of wrap the whole thing together because historically religious liberalism has had a real problem with things like sin a real problem with a god of wrath a real problem with atonement because where there's atonement you have anger which is god's wrath Religious liberalism has had a real problem historically and today with the exclusive claims of Jesus, like in John 14. And the list could go on. Conversion. But let's just stop there. If you would, let, let, let's, turn to, let's turn to Romans chapter... Let's turn to Romans chapter 3. Just to get a a, a reminder of how different this is from religious liberalism and how different the gospel is. Remember, Romans is about the gospel from chapter 1 onward and chapter 1, 2, and 3 really emphasizes sin and then it talks about Christ and and our Redeemer and This is what religious liberalism really has a a, a tough time swallowing and needs to somehow uh, move beyond. But it's not hard for you and it's not hard for me when we remember the gospel. 
But do notice that it says in verse 24 of chapter 3, we'll just jump in there. I suppose 23 would be important too, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Religious liberalism wants to see us as, as somehow worthy of the favor of God and uh, everything's fine and God is nice and we're nice. Isn't that nice? Let's all be nice. Um, it's kind of the idea. Um, but notice verse 24, and are justified by his grace. So that's something we don't deserve, but he gives it to us as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Not too offensive so far for them, but there is redemption. And that means there is enslavement to sin. Uh, otherwise, there would be no redemption. So it's starting to get offensive. And then verse 25 says, whom God put forward. He's talking about Jesus, his son. And now this is very offensive as a propitiation, as an atonement, as a satisfaction of divine wrath. Notice by his blood. So there is blood sacrifice to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. But really to see the beginning of verse 25 and to see, uh, let's make it real clear from the very beginning, the biblical gospel has to do with how great it is that God's wrath has been propitiated, has been satisfied by the work of Jesus so that you're not under his wrath. That's the biblical gospel. But when we're not emphasizing that, and what good news that is, the God who, to quote the Bible, who is angry with sin every day. When we're not emphasizing that, all of a sudden we find ourselves very drawn toward religious liberalism. Oh, we still have our Bibles open? Because we like Jesus, because he's nice. And we're nice. And isn't that nice? But my friends, that's a different religion. That's not Christianity. And now, all of a sudden, we're very unethical because we have the name Christian and we're not actually Christians. Christianity gives the glory to the Lord Jesus Christ because He is the propitiation for our sins, for our offenses. And we have hope and forgiveness in Him. And He receives the glory and the honor for that. And we should cherish that and love Him and worship Him because of these things. Now, here's where the drift comes, and we'll, we'll end on this, with liberalism. Historically, religious liberalism, Christian liberalism, has gone like this. Well, that atonement stuff, anger, wrath, you know, Romans 1 kind of stuff is offensive, and that doesn't really sell well in the marketplace of ideas. And so what we'll do, and this has happened time and time again, let's learn from history. Uh, if you're a denomination and you have a confession, you won't get rid of it because then some of the people, translation givers, um, some of the people will leave. They'll know we're up to something. So what we'll do is we'll have a, another confession of faith that really will get the attention. We won't get rid of our Bibles. In fact, let's not even close them. But what we will do is we will emphasize the examples in the Bible as opposed to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the centerpiece of the Bible. And when I put it in those, in those terms, I hope you can see our, even as evangelicals, drift toward that. 
we want to show the Bible how we want to show the world how relevant the Bible is, and how uh, if you mine it for its timeless truths, you too can apply these principles to your life and have a happier life. And maybe eventually we'll get to the atonement part. The centrality of the whole thing is the atonement part. If you think this isn't permeated deep and wide, even though it's kind of dead now, it's still its ghost is still lingering the hallways. What would Jesus do? Classic, classic question of old school liberalism. Distinctly Christian from a biblical vantage point, historically would be what did Jesus do? He atoned for our rebellion against God And we deserve to be damned, but instead he judged his son. And if you trust in him, you can be reconciled to God. When the emphasis is on following examples, we're on the fast track to not sounding distinctly Christian. Please don't misunderstand. Examples are important. We're called to be followers of Jesus. But before we're called to be his followers, we have a much bigger problem. Guilt of sin. And atonement doesn't come by following. It comes by trusting in Christ, who is the propitiation for our sins, as Romans says and 1 John says. There's a huge difference. There's a huge difference. Different religion difference. And so if you hear me time and time again talking to you about following examples and principles and things you must do, I hope you take me aside and say, Pat, tell me about what Jesus did. Tell me about what Jesus did or there's no hope for me. Let me be real frank about it. The example of Jesus and you following the example of Jesus, let's assume we have no atonement. Me telling you to follow Jesus week in and week out will be your undoing in hell. I don't know how to say it more bluntly than that for shock value. If you're merely trusting in being a good follower of Jesus, you are so going to hell it's not even funny starting with the reality of he did everything perfect. He fulfilled the law. He's the the perfect example. You're so smoked. It's the total lie from the pit of hell for me to say to you, all right, here's what you should do. Be a good follower of Jesus and everything will be fine. Everything won't be fine because he's a perfect, perfect human being, the God-man who came to save his people from their sins before he came as an example to us. Please remember that. The propitiation. And you see how a good thing can be hijacked and used wrongly. It's a good thing to follow Jesus. It's a good thing to ask yourself the question when you're in a moral question, what would Jesus do? Well, I'll tell you right now what he'd do. He'd do the right thing because he was perfect. But anyway, (laughs) it's appropriate and right. But what happens is we, we 
assume what Jesus did so much that we forget how Christianity really works. Ephesians gives us three chapters of what Jesus did, gospel realities, and then says, husbands, love your wives, and here's how. Wives, here's how you relate to your husbands. Children, parents, workers, co-workers, citizens. But it's under that great and amazing shadow of the gospel. And I remind you once again, it's a letter meant to be read in one sitting. So you don't lose sight of Jesus. Colossians is the same way. Romans is the same way. Let's commit ourselves by the grace of God as a church to to being deliberately and explicitly, purposefully Christian. Which means we're talking about what Christ has done for us. And that does lead to a change. And yes, we want to do the right thing as a result of that. But how quickly we just move on to do the right thing. I just want to end with this quotation from J. Grisham Machen. If you've never read that little book called Christianity and Liberalism, I commend it to you. It's free online. It's a classic. He wrote it about 100 years ago. Uh, And the main point is there is Christianity and there is liberalism and they're two different religions. There is the follow Jesus religion, which is not Christianity because it doesn't really follow Jesus. And there is Christianity, which is trusting in the finished work of Jesus. And that's Christianity. And it's, it's enlightening. It's helpful. It was so helpful for me to read that years ago. And then all of a sudden, like the emergent church movement comes along. And, it, and the big emphasis on let's focus on deeds, not creeds. And what we do is first and foremost, let's live the gospel, which is an impossibility. I'm like, I've seen all this before. Not in my day, because I didn't live in 1923. I've seen all this stuff come before because Machen dealt with it a hundred years ago. And it sounds like the very thing we hear from the emergent crowd. So I, I commend it to you. It'd be good summer reading. But in a different book that he wrote called The Virgin Birth, I want to read this quotation. It's helpful. Let's learn from history. It seems never to have occurred to the adherents of this religion. By this religion, he means imitate Jesus' religion. That there is such a thing as sin. And that sin places an awful gulf between man and God. But those convictions, though they are unpopular at the present time, are certainly quite central in the Christian religion. From the beginning, Christianity was the religion of the broken heart. It is based upon the conviction that there is an awful gulf between man and God, which none but God can bridge. And here's where he really puts his finger in our eyes. Of what avail, of what good, of what use, of what avail without the redeeming acts of God are all the lofty ideals of psalmists and prophets? I'm going to put my finger on the quote just to to tell you what he's saying if you aren't tracking. Of what value are all the lofty ideals of the psalmists and the prophets? Of what value are all the principles we mine from the life of all of these patriarchs? All of the teaching and example of Jesus. Of what value is that? We've already discussed what value it is, and it's not good. In themselves, Machen says, they can bring us nothing but despair. We Christians are not interested merely in what God commands, but also in what God did.
And he says, in technical terms, in the triumphant indicative, meaning in distinction of the imperative, be like Jesus, do what Jesus did, follow Jesus, be like David, be like Daniel. That's despairing. Those are all in the imperative. What we need is the triumphant indicative. Christ Jesus is our propitiation. Or Christ propitiated the judgment of God. Jesus Christ raised from the dead. That's where our hope is. That's where our hope is. So week in and week out, I hope to continue to give you the indicative. Oh yes, there needs to be imperatives. We need to be good citizens, godly husbands, godly wives, obedient children. We need to love one another, be long-suffering with one another, all of those things, absolutely. But those things will only lead us to despair, those imperatives. If we don't have the triumphant indicative, Jesus Christ raised from the dead for us. You see? Let's work very hard by God's grace. As long as we keep claiming the name Christian and church to sound distinctly Christian. Distinctly Christian. We have the built-in, wonderful, great, divine reminder right now. Make no mistakes about it. When Jesus took bread and wine and said, do this in remembrance of me. What do you think he meant? Broken body, shed blood. It's the great indicative. Christ died for our sins. Do this in remembrance of me and until I come again. Let's have it be a great and wonderful reminder this morning as we eat and as we drink, those of us who are Christians, to not lose sight of the gospel and have our trust be in him. Pray with me if you would. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the great, great reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the law makes us feel guilty, as so many biblical commands make us feel guilty as sinners, we're delighted to be able to know that there is one who came and did everything right and who fulfilled the law on our behalf. We are delighted to be able to name Jesus as our Savior, as our great law fulfiller today. We're delighted that we don't need to search and have a quest for something more and to pursue mysticism or to pursue something beyond Jesus. It is our supreme delight today to be able to remember the Lord Jesus Christ, our first love, the very one who gave himself up for us, so that we might know you, and even more importantly, to be known by you in a right standing. As we eat now, as we drink, and as we do these things together, may they be fitting and good reminders for us. Thank you for this unique experience you've given to us as the body of Christ. Use it to bear much fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.